February 15th, 2001, a old woman, aged 107, finally passes away. This is Rose Friedman, her maiden name, Rosenfield. Back in 1911, she was 17 years old, and she lived through one of the greatest tragedies to ever hit New York City, and the largest workplace disaster in New York history until 9-11. This is the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and these are the stories of the hundreds of people, mainly Jewish immigrant women, who were murdered by greed. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast, episode 19. Today we're going to be covering the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And we're going to get started now. So... America's burgeoning industrial might really came from immigration and East Coast cities. If you listen to any of our Civil War episodes, uh, you understand that the United States had a massive flux of immigrants, or any, you know, history of the United States at all, had a massive influx of immigrants, and uh, the North had a very strong industrial sector that grew drastically. The issue is... That industrial might and industrialization in the Northeast uh, came with horrific sacrifices of the people that worked in the factories. There was a very famous uh, photography show called How the Other Half Lives, in which it outlines exactly how people in slums, especially in New York City, lived. And they lived in squalor and in horrific conditions. And you can see this in any form of media from, you know, uh, taking place in New York City around uh, the 1880s to about the 1920s of just absolute squalor uh, where people had to, you know, work to survive or work and get themselves into horrific debt. This wasn't ideal for anyone, but if you were a new immigrant looking for opportunity, you know, some money's better than no money. And you just arrived in a new country and you're looking to at least, you know, establish a new life. So if it's the early 1910s uh, and you are a uh, young Jewish immigrant uh, to the United States, uh, really the options that are available to you are even worse because you are a woman and you can't really work in some of the factories that are more uh, focused on hiring men for male strength and all of that, or, you know, want children because children have small hands. You know, back back in the time where we were ripping, you know, child children's hands off in machinery. Uh, so your only option was really working in the garment industry. And uh, there were a few factories all across, uh, you know, the lower uh, east side and uh, in, you know, the bottom part of Manhattan where you could get a job. And if you happen to get a job at a place producing shirtwaists, which was a type of women's blouse, in 1911, you were going to experience a pretty horrific incident. Of course, this was around the time when Upton Sinclair wrote his famous book on meat packing plant industry called The Jungle. It was published in 1906, and... In American schools, high schools, 
you kind of read the book, you read at least parts of the book, and there's kind of this narrative, at least from what I remember when I was in high school, of the packing plants and working conditions in factories and such were bad. The book comes out, Theodore Roosevelt reads the book, and then they fix it. When in reality, it was just the meat conditions, the production conditions were horrific. The quality was bad, so the FDA was invented, and the quality kind of improved. The conditions for the workers didn't. That wasn't really a factor in the regulations that ensued. See, a book can change a lot in terms of what, like, the rich eat. You know, they don't want to be eating garbage, but in terms of the factory workers, those can only be fixed by blood. Now... Workplace safety around this time, just like the economics of the time, were very laissez-faire. You could be horrifically injured or die, and there will be no compensation to you or your family, and you could be tossed off with no limbs off to the side and uh, be left destitute and uh, starving. Or you could die and leave uh, your wife widowed and your children orphaned with no other options uh, whatsoever, all in the name of a uh, few dollars a day uh, if you were paid in actual dollars because this was the time of company script in which you might receive, uh, you know, what they said the wage was in uh, business A or business B money and that money can only be exchanged for like, you know, oh, I have uh, a dollar of company script and I can exchange it for 75 cents. Well, you're going to lose wages if you exchange it to actual money or you just spend the company script at the company stores and the company rent. And you're basically at that point a wage slave uh, held against his will or uh, being put into more and more debt. And this can be outlined in Tennessee Williams song 16 Tons. Uh, that's a very good song, but uh, we're focusing on uh, the history of uh, one incident i'm just trying to get a more broad understanding for you all so workplace injuries were extremely common and uh, that's where you know the burgeoning idea of labor unions really came into uh, it because you know you don't want to be hurt and you want to have more money and less hours working and their unions were beginning to form uh, with you know violent opposition from the people in power and the people who held businesses who would, you know, uh, get uh, stays on uh, certain conditions and have uh, courts issue, uh, you know, the ability to you know, break up a strike with violent force. But unionization was still on the up and up. And uh, there was a um, burgeoning workers union in uh, Manhattan called the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, uh, which was uh, still leading up in the early 1910s to uh, develop a female uh, labor union for people who work in uh, sweatshops. Uh, And they first uh, really started uh, doing a lot of uh, activism for women laborers in uh, 1909 in which there was an incident uh, called the uprising of the 20,000 which was a uh, wildcat strike uh, that lasted about 14 weeks uh, creating a massive uh, walkout and uh, really drained a uh, factory called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory uh, where that Triangle Shirtwaist Factory lost about 20% of its workforce at the time Uh, 
the that firm, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, then locked its employees out of uh, the building uh, and were eventually brought back under uh, control of the actual company. Uh, foreshadowing with the locking of doors. Uh, but there was labor movement uh, for these women working in these sweatshops making clothing, and uh, they were looking to actually, you know, have higher standards of living, less working hours, and higher pay, which is reasonable demands uh, for any person in a working uh, environment. And uh, they also want better safety regulations because, once again, injuries, especially in a sweatshop, were extremely drastic. Now, what do some of those accidents look like? Well, we've got a list from 1898 of the British textile industry of all the accidents that happened in that year. Now, I'm going to read you the fatal accidents and the number of people who died real quick. So 26 individuals were killed by, quote, being moved by a mechanical power. That'll be left up to your imagination. Uh, two were killed by explosion. One person was killed by escape of gas, either steam or metal. 16 people were killed by falling, and 14 were killed by other. Now, other could be any list of getting hands caught, bleeding out, whatever. But this also isn't a comprehensive list just in the sense that these are all the ones that were reported. Lots of these types of deaths or casualties or injuries would not be reported because there wasn't really that much regulation in terms of that. And a lot of these people are impoverished. I mean, they're not exactly making top dollar at these types of factories. They would be working Monday through Saturday, working about seven dollars to twelve dollars a week be about in 2018 currency three dollars and 67 cents to six dollars and 29 cents per hour which is completely unheard of in this day and age unless you work in a restaurant now that's not exactly enough money to you know gain upward mobility in society or to be able to risk losing your job, especially if that's the type of job you can get. So a lot of accidents would go unreported. 3,728 people were injured in 1898 in the British textile industry by mechanical power, you know, having your hand chopped off by a loom, anything like that. The safety standards of the day were more designed to protect the safety of the machines than of the workers because those were the valuable parts of the factory. The workers were replaceable. I mean, you pretty much, in New York City, were able to just walk down to the docks and pick up 40 new workers who just got off the boat, and their lives were worthless. So if you're running a textile factory, especially in New York, where these workers are so replaceable that it doesn't really matter uh the most important thing was the safety of machines like said earlier but also efficiency because the more product you put out the more sales you can get and the more sales you can get is the more profit in your pocket so you have to keep the machines moving and the efficiency up and if there's slacking on the floor especially on a production facility well uh a good way to motivate people is to say well you aren't leaving and lock the door and lock them in there until a quota is met or what you want done is done. And that is what Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the factory owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, wanted. They wanted efficiency 
and uh, Blank was really into the idea of the motivating uh, idea of locking doors to keep them locked and working hard. So lax safety standards and desires for efficiency brings us to 4.40 p.m. on March 25th, 1911. The workday was coming to a close, as it was 4.40, but then smoke was spotted on the 8th floor. A bookkeeper on the 8th floor noticed the fire start and the smoke pouring out and was able to call up to the 10th floor via telephone to warn the employees there, but there was no alarm system, so the employees on the ninth floor were unawares. Their first notice that there was a fire in the eighth floor was when it spread up to the ninth floor, and panic began to spread. Now, there was a few fire exits in the ninth floor, but the fire had blocked all of them because they were all in the same position. The main door was locked shut, so... There was no egress point. They were trapped, as the foreman who had the only key to that door had already made his escape. Now, the fire didn't stop some women from trying to escape through the fire exit, but as women poured out through the flames, the unstable anchor points that were poorly installed began to give way to the weight. There had been no regulatory checks of the fire escape to make sure it was still up to code, and it quickly collapsed, leaving no exit for the women, not even through the fire. Now, the fire department quickly arrived, as it's a large city and people were able to notify them, but their ladders were too short to reach the seventh floor, let alone the eighth or ninth floors. The elevators still ran for a few minutes afterwards, and the operators of the elevator were able to save a few women from the ninth floor, but shortly after their third trip up, heroes Joseph Zito and Gaspar Muellertello uh, were unable to go back up as the fire consumed the elevator shaft and melted the rails. Now, for the women on the production floor, uh, the room quickly filled with smoke, and with the exits that you know of either covered by flames, collapsing, or locked, there's no other options for escape or egress. So uh, 62 women uh, chose uh, falling to their death rather than burning to death and uh, jumped out the windows from uh, the ninth floor falling to their death and hitting the ground as bystanders looked on as fire began to consume the building almost entirely. Rose Friedman, from our intro, and then at the time Rose Rosenfeld, uh, was able to escape by following some of the con- company's executives uh, to the roof of the building, but uh, she was one of the lucky ones. Most of the women who were on the production floor were now trapped and were going to face a pretty horrible fate due to the lack of safety standards that the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had. The reporter, William Gunn Shepard, was at the scene taking notes to report on his newspaper, and he would then go on to say, I learned a new sound that day, a sound more horrible than description can picture the thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk the 62 women that did decide to jump 
weren't able to be saved even by firefighter nets. That old trope of firefighters holding that trampoline from cartoons. Well, those failed. The women would fly right through them, ripping them and smacking into the pavement, dying anyway. Altogether, whether it's the people who jumped or the people who stayed and burned, died of smoke inhalation, or uh, dying in the collapse of the fire escape, the total that would eventually be counted is 146 deaths. Mainly women and girls with 123. And 23 men. These were mainly Italian or Jewish immigrant women who were in their early teens to late 20s. Um, They were, you know, wives and daughters and granddaughters, and uh, the youngest were aged 14, uh, being Kate Leone and Rosera Maltese. These were normal people looking for a better life and were murdered by people who didn't care about safety whatsoever. They just cared about profit. This would be the largest workplace accident in New York City up until 9-11, which does have mirrors because you probably know the famous images of people jumping from the World Trade Center. And that wasn't a new phenomenon because in 1911, the same thing was happening, except that wasn't someone in a nice suit working a nice job, but it was probably in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, a 14-year-old. Now, the owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, who were in the building when the fire occurred and miraculously both survived by fleeing to the roof were indicted on first- and second-degree murder charges in April. Their trial was on December 4th of 1911, and their defense was effectively that the survivors who were testifying against them were coached. You know, the prosecutors told them what to say, and they were able to, I guess, prove this by having one survivor repeat her testimony multiple times, And the fact that she repeated her story without changing any major details was therefore proof that she had been coached. I mean, taking aside the fact that she was a eyewitness to an event, so her memory of the event generally would be the same because she saw it, uh, this defense worked. They were found not guilty of both charges, first and second degree murder. Now, the prosecution charged that the owners had knowingly locked the doors to the factory, which was true, but unfortunately the prosecution was unable to prove that they knew that the doors were locked because they had just told somebody else to do it because they were the owners. They're not going to go lock a door. Now, the investigators did, while investigating the fire wreckage and remains, find that the locks had been intended to only be locked during working hours, which was when the fire was started. This still didn't factor in enough to find the two factory owners guilty. Now, a later civil suit found them both guilty of wrongful death, which then awarded 
all the deceased families, $75 per person killed. So about $2,000 per family member who had died horrifically in either fire or falling, which is not that much money if I need to tell you that. Funnily enough, the insurance policy that Blank and Harris had taken out on the factory in case of fire paid them $60,000 more than even what they reported. So that came out to be about $400 per injured or dead. So the they made money. They made 20000 or more dollars off of this factory fire. And they profited. I mean, you know... You make a lot of money. That's almost more than you would have made from the factory had it not caught on fire. So why wouldn't you try it again? And they did try it again. In 1913, two years after the incident, they were once again arrested for locking the door of the factory and working hours, which at this point was illegal because it had killed 146 people. Now, they got off with only a $20 fine for this, which was the state minimum at the time, but they still tried it again and they you know too bad they didn't succeed this time they would have made a whole lot more money but they faced no real repercussions there was a local community effort for the victims uh to be buried uh with full funeral rites and in proper cemeteries all across uh the new york area and uh that was one of the few efforts that were able to be put in for these workers. But from the community that really got impacted by this, which was mainly immigrant Jewish families, there wasn't enough money to go around for actual any major charity or aid. Uh, it was more of a absolute disaster, but nothing really could be done, especially when you receive such a pittance for your... Uh, wife or daughter dying in a fire uh, that was caused by complete negligence and a lack of safety regulations. But the fire did lead to improving those safety standards. A little too late for these 146 uh, workers, but uh, still, nonetheless, worker safety improved and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union increased in membership drastically because of this. Because although if you didn't work in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, uh, there were many other garment factories all across Manhattan that saw this and was like, well, what's keeping that from happening to us? So union membership drastically spurred as uh, the idea that, hey, these people who work on our factories, especially us as a worker, aren't disposable. We aren't a replaceable item and you shouldn't, you know, not care about us and you shouldn't just care about the machines. We deserve rights and we deserve safety standards and we deserve higher pay, especially in hazardous working environments. And uh, a massive upkick in unionization kicked off all across the United States and particularly in Manhattan because of this situation. And this has been a rallying cry for uh, a bunch of uh, safety protocols and uh, safety standards and union organization uh, all across the uh, time 
that this has happened uh, with Elizabeth Warren during her presidential run for the 2020 presidential candidacy uh, talking about it or uh, the American Secretary of Labor discussing it or uh, protests in uh, and memorials in New York City in which they uh, carry around shirtwaist kites, uh, which are shirtwaists in the style of the time uh, being held up on poles uh, to show a memorial for uh, these women that died uh, in this horrific accident. This building uh, would eventually no longer be a factory. Uh, It would be renamed the Brown Building, and it is now a part of the NYU campus. So if anyone attends uh, New York University... Uh, and is interested in going to the place where uh, people died, uh, maybe attend your class at the Brown Building and see if it uh, has any uh, impact on your life, knowing that this is a historic building that is kind of forgotten. And this has been the Cleocast episode on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. I have been Matt. And I have been R.C., And uh, I hope you enjoyed. It is a bit morbid, but understand that uh, life gets uh, depressing sometimes and uh, maybe we should uh, try to take care of the people who work and produce things that we need to produce. Uh, You can go ahead and follow us on social media at Clio History on Twitter. Uh, You can email us at cleohistorypodcast at gmail.com and uh, you can follow us on Acast or anywhere else you get podcasts. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good one. Bye.